evening. Thank you. Thank you, everybody. Thank you, everybody. You can be seated. Uh, it's good to be here with you. Let's follow an actual Bible, um, Romans chapter 5. We're going to start there, and after that, good luck, okay? Because we're going to go all around the place. Let me take a second and say hello to our friends in Crow's Nest and Warwick and for people joining online. We're so glad that you have come in and joined in this experience. Anytime I speak, I hope a couple things happen. I hope Jesus gets bigger. I hope the cross works better. I hope the resurrection is central. I hope scriptures get bigger, not smaller. And so I hope that is, a, uh, is an experience uh, that, that you have, an eventual moment um, that encourages all of us to say our next yes uh, with God. And I'm so glad and, and, and thankful for the opportunity to come into your homes um, or to the Crow's Nest campus and the Warwick campus. Thanks for allowing me to be here. And now for you guys in here live, live now afterwards. Hey, where? Woo, they've got so fun. You're my kind of crowd. I'm liking this already, I can tell you. On the way out, we have a resource table set up. Stop by. Say hello to the team there. Uh, we, 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 have to, uh, we, we have to do that for two reasons. One is I've given my life to um, changing the way people think about God to make God the God they always hoped he would be. I love that this sort of sentence. That was really good. Um, and, and the other thing is, is that enables us to make a difference in people's life who could do nothing in return. And so we're going to give whatever we make um, from that. We have for over a decade to um, some homes in China that look after mentally handicapped children, two in Hinyang, one in Changsha, and two, a uh, thing in Cape Town that gets girls out of sex trafficking. Um, but we don't just do that. We get them off drugs, high school educated, and job trained so we can break the cycle of poverty in the Cape Flats. So come by. And, uh, and do that. So I've got a big task tonight. If you pay attention tonight and give me, I don't know, 35 minutes or so, okay? If you, if, you, if you pay really close attention, you are going to understand the whole Bible by the time um, we're done. But we're going to do it in a very fun way and, um, and in a way that, that you will remember. Social scientists tell me you'll forget 98% of everything I say by Wednesday. That is disheartening because I've worked hard on this. But they've, they've given me some tools that I can use, well, you will re remember this, all right? And so I want to start with Romans chapter 5, uh, verse 8. This is an incredibly revolutionary claim that Paul is making about the meaning of Christ. He says, God showed us his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So when Paul was thinking about the meaning of Christ, he said one of the things that sets Christ apart amongst anything else in the world is that Christianity is the first movement in the world where God moved first. Every other movement in the world, a God did not move first. You moved first. I moved first. You go to their temple, do their ritual in their posture at their moment, at their time, and then maybe their God would act on your behalf. Not Christianity. In Christianity, God moves first. While we were hostile, God made the first move and consented and then humbly waits for us to consent back. A revolutionary thought that if we're going to understand the basics of this thought, we have to understand the basic narrative of Scripture. The Scripture is not a static record of God. The Scriptures are a, a dynamic, progressive, moving revelation of God leading to the final revelation of God in the risen Christ. And I would like to explain that narrative the best I can so that we understand where this crucifixion, this cross, this revelation, revolutionary event in history where it fits into the historical arc. Now, to understand this, we've got to go all the way back to Abraham. And the most basic way we're going to understand tonight is this, that as they understood more about God, that God got closer and God got nicer. I can't say it any more elementary than that. That the more they understood about God, God got closer 
and God got nicer. Now it's very, under, it's very important that we understand God never changed. That's not the issue. The issue was their understanding about God changed and it got better and better and better and better and better leading to the final revelation of God in the, in the risen Christ. And so let's start with Abraham and let's talk about that first sentence that the more they understood about God, the closer he got. So in Abraham's day, if you wanted to communicate with God, where did God live? Where did God live in Abraham's day? This is pre-Bible, pre-Old Testament, pre-anything written down like that. Where did God live? And the answer was, this is going to be very primitive, the answer was up. Now, for the, rest of, for, for the rest of this sermon, when I say in Abraham's day, God lived, we're going to all do our thumb like this, and we're going to say, up. So let's practice this because you're sort of a raucous crowd anyway. All right, so I'm going to say this. In Abraham's day, God lived up. All right, let's try that again. We'll do it really, really together. This is going to help us remember the whole sermon later, okay? In Abraham's day, God lived up. Yeah, he lived up in the sky. We know from the Bible that Abraham was a sun worshiper. Does that mean he was a bad guy? No. If your concept is God lives up in the sky, if you go out in the middle of the day, what's the most powerful thing in the sky? The, the sun. So the logic was, if God lives up in the sky, that ball of fire must be God. But here was the problem with the sun. Every day it sets. So what would the logic be? There must be a God of the day, and then there must be a God of the... Yes. So if you go out in the middle of the night, what's the most powerful thing in the sky? The moon. So the sun must be the God of the day, and the moon must be the God of the night. And the logic was, was the sun was more powerful than the moon because of the sheer power it was exerting. Until by observation, here's what they saw, that the moon goes through a 28-day cycle very repetitively. It goes new moon, then waxing, then waning, then full moon, then new moon, then waxing, then waning, then full moon, then new moon. And they started writing this stuff down because you can look right at the moon. Now, wait a minute. The moon goes through an exact 28-day cycle and it renews itself every 20 28 days, which led them to this question. Who or what on earth goes through a 28-day cycle? Half the room should know this. <laughs> it's, it's, it's women, okay? I, I can see where the men are going. What the heck's he talking about? What's he talking Okay, you know that monthly thing that happens to you? It's supposed to happen every 28 days. If not, you sort of panic and you go to the pharmacy, right? But it's, it is a 28-day cycle. And so you're a caveman and you think the moon, and this was the logic, the moon must be the god of fertility controlling the women's fertility cycle and consequently controlling the women's moods. So if a full moon is out, you better get out of the cave. But when the new moon comes, it's going to be a good night tonight. It was just a better sort of situation. And so the sun was the god of the day, the moon was the God of the night. And then they started noticing celestial beings, like that must be a sub-God and a smaller God because the stars are smaller. They had no way of knowing, they're just further away. This was the idea that in Abraham's day, God lived up. Let's try that again. In Abraham's day, God lived up. Now, if you're a farmer, what do you need to come out of the sky so that you don't die? Rain. So the question is, is who is controlling the rain? And the obvious answer is the gods in the sky because water comes out of the sky. The gods are in the sky. So we need to appease the gods in order to bring rain so we don't die, which leads to this question. What must we do to please the gods? We'll get to that in a second. For right now, all I want you to know is that in Abraham's day, God lived. Uh, 430 years later, 
a guy named Moses comes along. And Moses is like, no, God doesn't live up. That's ridiculous. God lives in a tent in the middle of camp because that's less ridiculous. So we're going to make a tent. It's 45 foot long, 15 foot wide, 15 foot high, and God's going to live in there. And of course, Moses' advisors were like, bro, listen, if you tell people God lives in there, they're going to walk in there and realize it's like just furniture, right? And he goes, no, you know what we'll do? We'll tell them if they go in there, they'll die, right? Of course, there's no really record of that ever happening, right? And plus, it was a tent that they set up and tore down. Like, how did that even work? Like, if you were the part, what if you were the guy in charge of putting the last tent peg into the middle of the Holy of Holies? What did you get? Like a 60-second alarm? Like, get out of there! Beep, beep, beep! What? I don't know. It's just, it's, it's a very primitive thought, but it's a much better thought than God living up. In Moses' day, Moses moved the concept of God from God living up to God living in a tent in the middle of camp. He's moving closer. Now, has God ever changed? No, but when you move the consciousness of God from being far away in the sky and unreachable to a tent in the middle of camp, that is a move in the right direction. So, for the rest of the sermon, when I say, in Moses' day, God lived in a tent, and we're gonna do like that. We're gonna point down and to the left or right. Doesn't matter, whatever's easier, okay? In Moses' day, God lived in a tent. In Abraham's day, God lived up. Moses' day, God lived in a tent. Abraham's day, God lived up. Moses' day, God lived in a tent. Then a guy named David comes along. And David's like, no. God doesn't live in a tent. It's ridiculous. See, David had a political problem and a theological problem. The political problem is, is as the head of state, he would go visit other countries' heads of state, and then their heads of state would say, this is our God's temple. And it was like ridiculous ridiculously awesome. And he comes back. And when they visited him, they'd say, where does your God live? And David say, he lives in that tent. It's 45 foot long, 15 foot wide, 15 foot high, and it's covered in animal hair, right? So David's like, no, no, we are doing disservice to the glory of our God by letting other nations build bigger temples. So we're gonna build a temple. Plus, if they think our God's smaller than their God, they'll think they can attack us. So we can't have that. So David started the process of building God a temple, all right? So for the rest of the sermon, when I say in David's day, God lived in a temple, all right? In David's day, God lived in a temple. In Abraham's day, God lived up. Moses' day, God lived in a tent. David's day, God lived in a temple. And Jesus comes along. And they started saying crazy things. Things that people were like, surely I hope that's true, but is it true? They started saying things like the word had become flesh and dwelt. They started claiming that the spirit of God that was living in the Holy of Holies was fully present in a human being, in a person. So if you're following the logic, from Abraham to Jesus, you go from up to tent to temple to flesh. In, in, in the, from the Old Testament to the New, you have this dynamic, flowing, beautiful narrative from thinking God is way afar off and unreachable to God is actually walking around with us, teaching us how to live, how to see the world, and he cares about our daily needs. This is a dynamic leap forward in how people thought about God. Some people called it good news. Because when you go from up to tent, to temple, to knowing and having a conscience that God is near enough to be right with us, teaching us how to live, teaching us how to see the world, that is a good move. So for the rest of the sermon, when I say in Jesus' day, God lived in, we're going to tap our hand 
and say flesh. Let's practice that. In Jesus' day, God lived in flesh. In Jesus' day, God lived in flesh. Let's review. In Abraham's day, God lived up. Moses' day, he lived in a tent. In David's day, he lived in a temple. In Jesus' day, he lives in flesh. God's getting closer. Then the New Testament writers started claiming radical things like, don't you know that you are the temple of the living God? So Paul and Peter and James and John, they started making claims that the presence of God that once was relegated to a temple is now in all of us. So in the first century, when the Roman governor said to the Christians, where is your God's temple? They said, you're looking at him, right? And so by Paul's day, God lived in us. And we'll do our hands like this. So in Paul's day, God lived in us. In Paul's day, God lived in us. Let's review. In Abraham's day, God lived up. Moses' day, God lived in a tent. David's day, he lived in a temple. In Jesus' day, God lived in flesh. And by Paul's day, he lived in us. God's getting closer. So in the same scripture, there's this beautiful, dynamic, progressive narrative leading to the final revelation of God and the risen Christ, where people went from thinking God lived way up in the sky to a tent in the middle of camp, to a temple in the middle of town, to it walking around teaching us how to live, to actually the spirit of that God is inside the air that we breathe. This is an infinite move closer, and it is good news. Now, let's go back to Abraham and ask the second question. The first observation is that the more they understood about God, the closer he got. The second one was the more they understood about God, the nicer he got. And that's good because you don't want a God getting closer and meaner. That would be frankly terrifying, right? So let's go back to Abraham. In Abraham's day, with some gusto, everybody, in Abraham's day, God lived up. And that leads to this question. What do we need to come out of the sky for us to survive? Rain, which leads to this question. What must I do to please the gods in order to bring rain? So in Abraham's day, what did you have to do to please God? And this was the answer. I'm gonna show it to you, then we're gonna do it together. We're gonna shrug our shoulders and go, yeah, I don't know. All right, so let's practice that move together. It's really simple to do. We're gonna shrug our shoulders and go, yeah, I don't know. So in Abraham's day, God lived up. What'd you have to do to please God? Ready, go. Yeah, I don't know, I don't know. <laughs> so what do you do when you don't know? You make it up. And if you make it up with enough confidence, it catches on. So here's what they did. This is in ancient Sumeria. In ancient Sumeria, they taught the ancient Sumerians that in order for the gods of the sky to bring rain, you had to do two things. First thing is self-mutilation. They said, you can appease the gods by cutting yourself. Now here's the problem with that. If I say, you can appease the gods by cutting yourself, what is your question? What must I cut and how much of what must I cut? And the answer was, everybody together. Yeah, I don't know. So in one sect of ancient Sumerian culture, they just said, just cut till it rained. <laughs> they lived in Iraq. So you have ancient Sumerian people with like their arms falling off, right? Second thing they said was, is they said, first thing you must do is mutilate yourself, cut. Second thing you must do is sacrifice. Now, once again, if I was to say, hey, you could get right with God and make it rain by sacrifice, what's your question? What must I sacrifice? And more questionable, how much of what must I sacrifice? And what was the answer? Everybody together. Yeah, I don't know. <clears throat> so here's what they did. 
They just kept offering more and 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 waited till it rained. And whenever it rained, that was the answer. So that got really untenable. So here's what they did. One sect of ancient Sumerian culture said, you know what? The gods of the sky cannot possibly reject us if we give our most valuable thing. And our most valuable thing is our firstborn children. So here's what they did. They started a tradition of every person had to sacrifice their firstborn child to the gods of the sky in order to guarantee rain. This is ancient Sumeria. It is in that historical context that God shows up to Abraham. And God says, hi, Abraham. My name is El Shaddai. I love the grace of God with Abraham. He doesn't show up and tell him more than, he says, hey, El Shaddai just means God Almighty. In other words, you got a bunch of gods. You got to be wondering who's in charge. That's me, right? And Abraham's like, well, at least you're talking. What do you expect from me, El Shaddai? Now remember, what did the gods of Abraham's day expect? Self-mutilation and child sacrifice. So El Shaddai meets Abraham right where Abraham thought God was. He doesn't try to shift it. He meets him right where he thought God was. If you don't hear anything else I say, hear me say this. God is always humble enough to meet you where you think he is and engage the broken narrative to make a more beautiful story. So El Shaddai says, all right, you think you need to mutilate and you think you need to sacrifice. First thing I want you to do, Abraham, is I want you to self-mutilate. I want you to circumcise yourself with a rock, which is an odd command, isn't it? Abraham's like 90, and God's first command to this guy is pick up a rock, swing hard, don't miss. That's weird, right? You ever seen a 90-year-old man? His hand shakes, his eyesight's not real good. You imagine that? Hey, Betty, say a prayer for me, sweetheart. This is gonna be interesting. I'm gonna try to get this in one shot. This is gonna hurt real bad, though. I can tell you right now, this is gonna be, this is gonna be horrendous. This is gonna be horrendous. Now, for us... For us, circumcision is barbaric and the law, right? But why was this gracious? Well, when you live in a world where you don't know how many cuts to do and God shows up and says, I've got an idea. If you think you need to cut, fine, cut, but let's do circumcision. Why? Because how many times could you ever possibly circumcise yourself? The answer's once, right? Like, if you can circumcise yourself twice, you the man, I don't know, I don't know. It's just a strange <clears throat> sort of thing, right? So they move the world from infinite cutting to one off. God is getting nicer. Second thing God says is he says, I want you to sacrifice your kid. Odd command. What's odder is if you go back and read the story, Abraham doesn't ask why. Like if somebody said, hey, listen, kill your kid. What's your question? What? Why? What did I smoke earlier, right? Like you'd be thinking you were hearing wrong, correct? No, no. Abraham doesn't ask why and he doesn't ask how. He knows why. It's to bring rain. That's what you must do to please the gods. Everybody knows that. That's what we all do. And he doesn't ask how. It says, so Abraham took Isaac to a high place. Why would you take your son to a high place? Because God lived up. God always engages us where we think he is and then moves the story better. So Abraham takes Isaac to a high place. And for the first time in the history of all gods anywhere in the whole history of the world, a God shows up and stops a sacrifice in order to provide one. And here's what God says. Hey, Abraham, I got a, I got a better idea. Instead of killing kids, let's kill animals instead. Now, when you're the first person to get the idea to kill animals instead of children, is that a good move or a bad move? 
yeah, don't, please don't think too hard about that. When, you, when you're the first person to understand that we can kill animals instead of children, is that a good move or a bad move? That's a really good flippin' move. Is that a word from God? You better believe that's the word of God. Is that the final word of God? No, the final word of God is the risen Christ, but that's a giant leap in the right direction. See, we look at animal sacrifice and go, what, were they maniacs? Yeah, sort of, but when you look at where they came from, they moved the world from child sacrifice to animal sacrifice. That is a giant leap in the right direction. Let's review for a second with some gusto. In Abraham's day, God lived up. How much did you have to cut? Yeah, I don't know. How much did you have to sacrifice? Yeah, I don't know. God shows up to Abraham. He says, my name is El Shaddai. Abraham has a son named Isaac. Who is Isaac's God? El Shaddai. Isaac has a son named Jacob. Who is Jacob's God? El Shaddai. Jacob has 12 children. Who's their God? El Shaddai. 12 children have 12 children. Who's their God? El Shaddai. 144 kids have 12 kids. Who's their God? El Shaddai. The math is getting too hard. Who is their God? El Shaddai. Next generation. Who's their God? El Shaddai. 20 generations later, there is no God but El Shaddai. No other name other than El Shaddai. It's in our verses. It's in our pamphlets. It's in our websites. It's in our fundamental truths. There is no God but El Shaddai. And Moses comes along. Moses kills a guy. Ends up out in the middle of the wilderness. And Moses grew up in Pharaoh's house and he was taught his whole life that God was a fire. God was the sun. A consuming fire. If you tick this fire off, he consumes you. So Moses is out in the middle of the desert and God, like he always does, meets people exactly where they think he is. So Moses thinks God's a fire. So how does God reveal himself to Moses? As a fire, as a burning bush. And he says, hello, Moses. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Moses finds something funny. This burning bush isn't burning up, not even the most frail branch. But see, Moses was taught his whole life that God was a consuming fire. What's happening in the story is that God is engaging Moses right where Moses thinks God is, and he's turning it upside down as to how he sees God. You were taught your whole life God's a consuming fire? Fine, I'll be a fire, but I am not the fire you always thought I was. I'm a refining fire who's not even harming the most flammable thing in the desert. As the great T.S. Eliot wrote, we only sustain, only suspire, consume by either fire or fire. You will live your whole life terrified of the consuming fire of the sun God Ra, or by faith you will embrace the refining fire of a loving Yahweh, who although he will perfect you, he will never harm you, for the bush was not consumed. That is articulate. So Moses has this encounter with the burning bush, and the, and, and the bush says, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And remember what Moses says? Oh, hello, El Shaddai. Awesome. Let me take my shoes off real quick. And the bush says, no, I introduced myself to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as El Shaddai, but by my name, Jehovah, they did not know me. And he actually just says, yud he Moses says, what's your name? yud he I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And if you look at the story, it's kind of a comedy. Moses argues with a talking bush, which is like funny. So Moses says, Yudevave, what? No, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob's El Shaddai. Everybody knows that. It's in our verses, it's in our pamphlets, it's in our websites, it's in our fundamental truths. Everybody knows the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob's El Shaddai. And the burning bush says, listen, I introduced myself to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob's El Shaddai, but by my name, Yudevave, they didn't know me. Now here's the problem. In Hebrew, you can't say that name. 
it phonetically doesn't go together. Yud, he, vav, he. It's just four Hebrew letters. Yud, he, vav, he. It'd be like me saying, my name is What? Come again? Yud, he, vav, he. What? Yud, he, vav, he. It's not even a word. I know. I know. My name's Yud, he, vav, he. What does that even mean? It means I am what I am. Because <laughs> that clears it up, right? <laughs> so Moses goes back to these slaves, who, by the way, he didn't have a great reputation. He was a premeditated murderer, you remember. So he goes back to these slaves. And here was his message, right? I know you've been taught your whole life for 20 generations that there is no God but El Shaddai. But I just met God in the wilderness and he's changed his name. It's not only El Shaddai, it's also yod heh <laughs> How well do you think that went? It didn't go well. I mean, would you have believed it? No. Imagine, just play along with that. Moses, God's name is El Shaddai. Nope, he told me. He told me his name's yud heh Really, he told you that, Moses? Yes, yes. Was anybody else up there to witness that? No, no. How'd he tell you, Moses? A talking bush. <laughs> Which leads to this observation. Right? Jewish history tells us that they didn't buy it either, don't worry. That they didn't buy Moses' story till he brought water out of the rock and then they started changing their tune, right? Because when you show up changing things about God, it's a whole different thing. So the Holy Spirit inspires Moses to write a book called Leviticus, like this barbaric law book. But, but actually, the historians say, specifically Karen Armstrong, that Leviticus is the nicest book about God ever written in the history of the world up to the time it was written. Why? Because Leviticus was the first book ever written that put limits on sacrifice. In Abraham's day, how much did you have to sacrifice? I don't know. How much did you have to cut? I don't know. Leviticus says, if you're going to circumcise, circumcise on the eighth day and then no more cutting and putting marks on your body. This was a massive, trust me, no one thought that in 2021, people would still be arguing about whether or not it's a sin to have a tattoo. That was not the issue. The issue was this group of people thought they might have to put markings on their body to please God. Moses is like, what year is it? No, circumcise on the eighth day, that way no one remembers it, and then no more cutting your body for God. And secondly, he said, here's what you gotta do. Here's all you gotta do to be forgiven. One sacrifice per family per year. One sacrifice per family per year. My goodness, let's review. And with some gusto, ready? In Abraham's day, God lived. Up. How much you have to sacrifice? I don't know. How much you have to mutilate? I don't know. Moses' day, God lives in a tent. How much you have to sacrifice? Once. How much you have to mutilate? Once. God's getting nicer. Then this guy named David comes along. And in David's day, God lives in a temple. Now the rules don't change. In David's day, God lived in a temple. How much you have to sacrifice? Once. How much you have to mutilate? Once. Then these guys called the prophets come along. And the prophets start questioning whether this is ever even necessary. Like there was this guy named Micah. He says, what kind of God delights himself when you kill a goat? That don't make no sense. Just do justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with God. It'll be okay. Woo. He was so far ahead of himself, though, they killed him. Well, that's what happens when people bring an idea about God that's too far from what people can accept. They're going to kill you, right? Jesus addressed that in Matthew 23. He says, you who stone the prophets. He was standing in a cemetery, by the way, when he said that. You who stone the prophets, true. 
He's like, yeah, these, these, these guys, you, in other words, the ones you call prophets today are the ones you stoned yesterday. And I'm bringing a message that's a little too far ahead. You're gonna kill me only to one day realize I was really onto something, <laughs> right? Right? Then Jesus comes along. Actually, let's review because I, I really want people to remember this, okay? With some real gusto, okay? In Abraham's day, God lived. Up, how much you have to sacrifice? I don't know. How much you have to mutilate? I don't know. Moses' day, he lives in a tent. How much you have to sacrifice? Once. How much you have to mutilate? Once. In David's day, God lives in a temple. How much you have to sacrifice? Once. How much you have to mutilate? Once. In Jesus' day, God lives in flesh. And then Jesus starts making God nicer than anyone ever thought possible. Like, he started calling people forgiven without a sacrifice. Oh my goodness. Like, there's this one time. There's this tax collector named Zacchaeus. He's up a tree to see what he could see, right? And Jesus stops. He's got thousands of people behind him. And Jesus stops and he says, Zacchaeus, I want to eat with you. And it says, Zacchaeus was so moved by the compassion of Jesus that he said, hey, here and now, I'll give half of what I have to the poor. And what did Jesus say? That's it. Salvation has come to your house. <sighs> is Jesus allowed to do that? Okay, if I ask you if Jesus is allowed to do something, the answer is a resounding yes. So let's practice that. Is Jesus allowed to do that? Can you call someone forgiven without a sacrifice? Can you call someone forgiven without a temple ritual? No temple ritual, no sacrifice. Jesus saw his heart change and he counted it to him as righteousness. And without a temple visit and without a sacrifice, salvation came to his house. Jesus, the God revealed in Christ is nicer than anyone ever thought before. This was unbelievable. Which by the way, what was the only way to be saved in the first century? Yeah, at this point they did know, but good, 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 good. The, the only way to be saved in the first century is temple ritual. You had to go have a priest offer sacrifice for you. Who was forbidden from the temple? tax collectors. So what did you do when your job forbidden you from entrance into the only place salvation could be found? Jesus circumvents the entire system of oppressive power. He sees the man's heart change. He says, I'll count that. That is the God revealed in Christ. And for those of you here this morning, that is the yoke of our rabbi. <laughs> like there's this one time. It says that Jesus went to a prostitute's house which leads to all kinds of questions like, is Jesus allowed to do that? Yes. Is Jesus allowed to do that? Yes. And at least at this question, what would have been going on at a prostitute's house? Business, <laughs> prostitution, like Jesus is between customers, which leads to this question, would there ever be a worse place to run into Jesus, <laughs> right? Like Jesus is in the front room, you know, and the guy comes out the back, you know. He's like all relaxed, you know, he's like. Don't, <laughs> oh, Jesus! <laughs> hey, man, I was just here to use the toilet. <laughs> right? And it says that the prostitute was so moved by the compassion of Jesus that she knelt down and washed his feet with her hair. 
And what did Jesus say? That's it. All your sins are now forgiven. Is Jesus allowed to do that? Yes. <laughs> Can you get saved by washing his feet with your hair? <laughs> and aren't you glad that's not the rule? It's like, my friend. <laughs> I mean, you're a great guy. I've known you. I, like, you're just an awesome man, seriously. But with all respect, for you to wash his feet with your hair, it'd be a three-man job. You'd have to be turned upside down and used like a buffer. See, we, we like to put all kinds of rules around things. Actually, what Jesus seems to be interested in is thirst, desire, and heart change. What was the only way to be saved in the first century? Temple ritual. Who's not allowed in the temple? Prostitutes. So what did you do when your job precluded you from going to the only place salvation could be found? Jesus circumvents the entire system of oppressive power, and he sees her heart change and gives her hope. That is the God revealed in Christ. And that is the yoke of our rabbi. <laughs> this is one time. Jesus is next to a guy on a cross. And the guy says, he can't breathe. That was part of crucifixion. You'd suffocate. He can't breathe. He doesn't know any words. He doesn't know anything. And he says, please remember me. That's all he knows how to say. Hey, please remember me. And what does Jesus say? Well, you better hurry up and say the sinner's prayer. They're not going to think you're saved in 2021. You imagine if Jesus was some semi-ghettoized evangelical, how horrible that conversation would have been. Like they're both on a cross, you know, and the guy's like, please, please remember me. And Jesus is like, well, you better hurry up and say the sinner's prayer. They're not going to think you're saved in 2021. What's the sinner's prayer? It's this prayer they make up in 1820 to help people connect with me. And I dig it, right? What's it based on? It's based on Romans 10, 9, and 10. What's Romans? It's a book that hasn't been written yet, but you better hurry up, bro. <laughs> what? Ridiculous. Like, what was the only way for that guy to be saved in the first century? Temple ritual, which means he would have had to come off the cross, run to the temple, find a priest to offer him a sacrifice for free, come back and get back up on the cross. Jesus like, that seems really hard. Let's just see his heart change and let's count that today you'll be with me in paradise. See, the God revealed in Christ started changing all the rules for the better. In Jesus' day, how much did you have to sacrifice? Evidently none. How much did you have to circumcise? Evidently none. God's getting nicer. Like Jesus started calling people forgiven without a sacrifice. Let's review it, 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 with some gusto. Everybody together, ready? Here we go. In Abraham's day, God lived up. How much do you have to sacrifice? I don't know. How much do you have to mutilate? I don't know. Moses' day, he lives in a tent. How much do you have to sacrifice? Once. How much do you have to mutilate? Once. In David's day, he lived in a Temple, how much you have to sacrifice? Once, how much you have to mutilate? Once, Jesus' day, God lived in flesh. How much you have to sacrifice? None. How much you have to mutilate? None. Boy, can you see why some people called that good news? <laughs> but it doesn't end there. In Paul and the New Testament, in Paul's day, God lived in us. Let's try that again. In Paul's day, God lived in us. And then they made the story unbelievable. Here's what they claimed. Six different places by four different authors, they make a claim that what we saw at Calvary was not new. That actually Jesus did not inaugurate a new reality. He simply showed us what God was always like since before the foundation of the world. That God was like Jesus, exactly like Jesus. God has always been like Jesus. We just didn't know it, but now we do. 
And essentially the claim they made was everything you saw at the cross of Calvary was true before the foundation of the world. Ephesians 1.4, he was chosen before the foundation of the world. 1 Peter 1.20, he was crucified before the foundation of the world, but in these last days was made manifest so you could see it. 1 John chapter one, and we know that all these things have been true since before the foundation of the world, but now you have seen it with your own two eyes. 2 Timothy 1.9, your salvation was given to you in Jesus Christ before the foundation of the world. Hebrews chapter four, and his sacrifice was completed before the foundation of the world. And my personal favorite, Hebrews chapter nine. Didn't you know, all along, it was impossible for the blood of sacrifices to take away your sin. But God simply gave you those to do because you thought you needed to and your conscience needed to be appeased. For don't you know that Jesus died before the foundation of the world at the culmination of the ages? I love that, the culmination. Does that sound like a Jewish theological principle? No, that sounds like a rock festival. Where'd you go last weekend? I went to the culmination of the ages. <laughs> it was awesome. <laughs> it was awesome. It was awesome. In other words, to the New Testament writers, once they saw how the story ended, they were like, God has been that good all along that Jesus did not inaugurate a new reality. He simply showed us what God was always like. What? And by the way, that's the only thing that makes Christianity make any sense, right? The only thing, otherwise this is the story, ready? Hey, Shane, tell me the gospel in like a paragraph. Okay, ready? Uh, God created the world, and even though he was God, he lacked the foresight to foresee human rebellion. So when humans rebelled, it sort of surprised him. So he racked his God brain as to what to do. And even though he was God, his best idea was to send his son to earth on a suicide mission to be tortured and killed. And even though his son went through with it, still billions of people are gonna burn in hell forever with no hope of ever getting out. And God never gets what he wants anyway. <laughs> Join us. <laughs> Does that make so much sense? No, no, no. The good news is better than that. The good news is this, is that God created the world and because he was God, he was able to foresee human rebellion and instead of destroying the whole thing before it started, he set out a plan and he fixed the whole thing before it started. And the whole rest of the story is him convincing his creation of what has always been true before the foundation of the world and invite us back to embrace original goodness instead of Jesus coming to fix our original badness. And if that's the case, that is worth calling good news. So, let's review with some gusto. Ready? In Abraham's day, God lived. Oh, how much you have to sacrifice? I don't know. How much you have to mutilate? I don't know. Moses' day, he lived in a tent. How much you have to sacrifice? Once. How much you have to mutilate? Once. In David's day, God lived in a temple. How much you have to sacrifice? Once. How much you have to mutilate? Once. In Jesus' day, God lives in flesh. How much you have to sacrifice? None. How much you have to mutilate? None. In Paul's day, God lives in us. And what was true? It was true before the foundation of the world. And our only response is to thirst and embrace what had always been true and let our lives show the whole world what it would look like to be intimately connected with a God that loved creation enough to fix the whole broken thing before it started. So may you, my brothers and sisters, live a life that shows the whole world what it looks like to be connected to what happened at the culmination of the ages. I'll see you guys tomorrow night. Grace and peace, everybody.